The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. So I wanted to talk tonight um, about some uh, thoughts and reflections I've been having um, on a popular topic. And that is the topic of loving kindness. Um, I'm uh, developing a, a book on this topic. We'll see if it gets uh, finished. Um, it's it has to wait in line for the other book I'm currently writing. Um, one of my addictions is writing books, so. Uh, I'm not sure if there's a program for that. Yeah. Writers Anonymous. Of course, no writer wants to be anonymous, so <laughs> probably won't be able to get anybody to come to the meeting. So, uh, what got me uh, thinking about uh, this material that I'm working with started a few years ago. I was teaching a class for college students on Buddhism, and I introduced them to the uh, loving-kindness practices, this uh, metta, we call it. Uh, and um, I taught them this traditional form that, that uh, at least uh, has been, is how we teach it in the West. And I think uh, most of us were introduced to this in the, in the uh, book by Sharon Salzberg called Loving Kindness. Uh, it was published in 1995. And actually that book really, I, I have to say, transformed Western Buddhist practice uh, by shifting the emphasis away from the purely insight and mindfulness orientation towards more heart practice. And, and uh, it was an important uh, balance that, that Sharon was uh, helping to bring uh, to people's practice. Uh, but these college students, I, I taught them the practice of sending love to themselves, to to people that they loved, their family and, and dear ones, to a neutral person or people, and then to difficult people. And uh, there, as, as I uh, teach the course, I have them write each day about their um, their practice and and. Sent, give me little notes on their practice. This is a, a one-month course, so we have four days a week, so I get to really see what's happening day by day in their practice. What I noticed by the end of that week was that what they were saying a lot of the time was that they were just sending loving kindness to people they loved. They were not really working with the neutral and definitely not with the difficult. And it, it, it uh, raised some concern for me that they were not really understanding the practice. Uh, because uh, it's easy to love people that you already love and to send love to them. And that's not really the goal of the practice. Because it, what I realized was they were using it as a feel-good practice. And uh, being a skeptic and somewhat of a cynic, I started to wonder if more people than just my students were doing that and started to wonder if, if a lot of people were using loving-kindness practice uh, just as a kind of feel-good practice. Um, and if you've been practicing mindfulness practice for a long time, you know you're not supposed to feel good. 
when you're when you're meditating. Oh, it's not that I don't want people to feel good, but the, uh, obviously the, the purpose of our practice is a little deeper than that. It, it includes that. Hopefully we feel good as a result of our practice, but not as sort of the goal. And, and so as I started to write about this recently, I went and was looking at some of the, the promos that are for the retreats, the loving kindness retreats and classes. And I could see that most of them focused on the pleasant aspects of practice. You know, come, open your heart, develop more kindness, more love, more compassion. It doesn't say, come, learn to love your enemies. Come, and learn how to get along with the people you have difficulty with. So I thought maybe, maybe there are some uh, other things that can be brought forward in the, these teachings now. And so I started, so I sort of, I've sort of gotten an outline of the book, which I'm going to, um, I, I won't get through even the whole outline with you, but a few of the high points, <laughs> such as they are. Um, so the, I wanted to start by talking about very practical aspects of loving kindness that aren't so much about feeling good or even having a heart, a, you know, a wide awake, wide open heart, you know, those kind of feelings of uh, boundlessness that we sort of hear about. I wanted to start somewhere very practical. So I, re- I remembered a, a time when I was looking for a sutta that might address loving kindness on the practical level and, and in the Majjhima Nikaya, the middle-length discourses, I found this sutta that describes the Buddha coming to visit three monks who are practicing together. And um, I think I'll just read a few of the lines from the sutta uh, to give you an idea of this. So the Buddha comes to visit these monks who are basically having a retreat together. And the way they live is that they, in the morning they get up and they go on alms round. They go in the begging with their begging bowls, they get some food from the nearby villagers, then they come back to their little encampment there just in a forest and, and have their meal. And uh, the, the Buddha says to them, I hope you are living in concord with mutual appreciation, without disputing, blending like milk and water, viewing each other with kindly eyes. And the, one of the Monks, Anuruddha responds, um, yes, we are living in concord. And he repeats the same phrases, the typical of the suttas, with mutual appreciation, that disputing, blending like milk and water, viewing each other with kindly eyes. And the, but the Buddha pushes further. He says, but, but Anuruddha, how do you live thus? Anuruddha says, Venerable Sir, as to that, I think thus. It is a gain for me it is a great gain for me that I am living with such companions in the holy life. But his first thought is, I'm lucky to be with these people. I maintain bodily acts of loving kindness towards those venerable ones, both openly and privately. And he, he then says, uh, uh, about a couple lines, but then he says, why should I not set aside what I wish to do and what these other venerable ones wish to do? find that a very uh, compelling point. 
Why should I not set aside what I wish to do? And then he he goes into the details of how they live together. He says, Whichever of us returns from the village with alms food, prepares the seats, sets out the water for drinking and for washing, and puts the refuse bucket in its place. Whichever of us returns last, eats any food left over, if he wishes. This is all men, so that's, we'll, we'll let them get by with the, that gender. Whichever of us returns last, eats any food left over, if he wishes. Otherwise, he throws it away where th- there is no greenery, or drops it into water where there is no life. He puts away the seats and the water for drinking and for washing. He puts away the refuse bucket after washing it, and he sweeps out the refectory. Whoever notices that the pots of water for drinking, washing, or the latrine are low or empty takes care of them. If they are too heavy for him, he calls for someone else to join him. And this is loving kindness. (laughs) In other words, they clean the toilet, they put out, they set the table, they prepare, they take care of each other in their home. And when I read this, it was soon after my daughter was born, and I thought, this is just like our our house at home. You know, I change the diapers, I take out the garbage, I do the dishes, and that's how I express loving kindness to my family. You know, I can go down to my office uh, I have at home and meditate for a long time. I can sit down there sending loving kindness to my wife and daughter upstairs. But it really doesn't impress them. <laughs> when I come upstairs and clean the bathroom and do the, make dinner and do the dishes, then they know that I love them. I can tell them, oh, I've been meditating for you. Oh, thanks. Thanks so much. Now, the garbage needs to be empty. So this is the first aspect of loving tennis, I think, that we, that's important to recognize. This is a core aspect. We can, it's so easy sometimes to get our practice up in the clouds and, and sort of, or it's all an inner experience. Not to realize that, you know, this is, this is how we can express love in these simple ways. And, and difficult. I mean, you know, who, who has not had an argument with someone in their household at some time about who does the dishes or who cleans the bathroom or you know who takes out the garbage. I mean, these are common disputes. We're not always blending like milk and water. Or milk and, yeah, milk and water. Got that. Um, so it's a great starting point for our practice you know, to look, look at this aspect of it. Um, it it's interesting. I, I was listening to as I, as I work with this, I, I listened to a Dharma talk by um, Bhikkhu Bodhi, who's the translator who translated these suttas. And as he was talking, he was talk, I was listening to him talking about this sutta. And then he mentioned, oh, there's another sutta in which uh, just the opposite happens. It's a famous sutta called the Quarrel at Kasambi. There, the monks got into an argument about how you were supposed to leave the toilet when you were done with it. There, uh, in, in Asia, and still today, I understand, I haven't been to Asia. This is one of the reasons why. They don't have toilet paper, right? You use water for the same purpose. 
And so in this, the way, the rule in this monastery where these monks lived together was uh, that if the water bucket was half empty, you had to go refill it. And one of the monks said, well, that's silly. You know, there's still plenty of water in there. And so an argument broke out. One side took up the, it's, you have to refill it, and the other side took up the, no, it's okay to leave it half full. And they, the Buddha came and said, what are you guys arguing about? You know, and he, they explained it to him, and they were like, well, who's right? And he was like, I'm, you know, I'm not getting involved in this. You guys, you, this is not what you should be doing with your time. But they nearly split apart as a community over how the toilet how you cleaned the toilet, or how you, what you did with the water in the toilet. So uh, it's not actually that a trivial a matter. You know, we see how these, these supposedly, you know, seemingly small things, but but here there is this sort of uh, teaching in the, in Buddhism about how we create struggle, conflict. So that's chapter one. <laughs> chapter two. <laughs> In this chapter, I'm talking about a famous sutta called the simile of the saw. And the, the, the climax of this sutta, and, and many of these suttas do have sort of a narrative arc. And in the climax of this sutta, the Buddha says, if you were being, if your limbs were being sawed off one by one with a two-handled saw, which would mean there were two people, right? You can see there's people with if your limbs were being sawed off one by one with a two-handled saw and a single thought of ill will arose in your mind, you were not following my teachings. You were not a follower of mine. What an order, you know. I mean, this is it's setting the bar kind of high. Um, but what this sutta is about is what the Buddha calls non-ill will. Well, what's non-ill will? Isn't that love? Well, yeah, it probably is love. Um, But here again, I think that the Buddha is offering us another way of thinking about this. Rather than, oh, I'm going to feel love for all beings, I'm just going to try not to hate beings. Is there anybody that in your life that you feel tremendous dislike for? Maybe not a personal person that's, you know, a a friend or an acquaintance. Maybe a public figure. (laughs) Can you not hate can you not hate that person who you feel is metaphorically at least sawing your limbs off? What a challenge. Again, you know, just maybe easier to sit around and send love to people, but when you pick up the newspaper, where does your heart go? I don't guess a lot of people pick up newspapers anymore, but when you engage, when you look at your Facebook feed and somebody has a link 
to an article that so the as I've worked with that this sutta, you know, when I first engaged the sutta, I thought he's kidding, right? Sawing off your limbs? Nope, that's impossible. You know, uh, and and then again, it was actually again that I was teaching this college course, which happens to be at a, co- a Catholic college. That I, it just occurred to me that the story of Jesus on a cross on the cross was actually the story of someone in this exact circumstance who's been nailed to a cross, you know, l- tortured, nailed to a cross, <laughs> tortured, dragging the cross through town, spit upon, and nailed to the cross, and then a spear put through his side. And what does he say? Uh, for those of you who were not uh, raised in that tradition, uh, the phrase that I was taught as a child was that Christ looks down on the people who have been his tormentors and says, forgive them, Lord, they know not what they do. Wow. Not only does he not Ill, have ill will, but his real concern is for their karma. Because he knows that what they've done is creating tremendously negative karma. There's a story of a, a, a Chinese monk who during the Cultural Revolution was attacked by the Red Guard and beaten to, within an inch of his life. And he was, as the story goes, 112 years old or some you know, venerable person. All his students had run away when the Red Guards came. He, he received them. They they beat him and left him for dead. However, he did not die, and his students came back and nursed him. But they could see that he was so fragile and, and that they, they said to him, It's okay, if you you can let go. You know, if you need you know, don't don't hang on for us. Don't try to stay alive for us. And he looked at them and said, I'm not staying alive for you. I'm staying alive for the people who beat me, because their karma will be so bad. I die. So I have to recover. That's pretty compassionate. And I think that's what the Buddha is talking about. This kind of uh, non-ill will. So I would recommend practicing non-ill will. Uh, if you practice non-ill will, the loving kindness will take care of itself. You know. So the the next chapter uh, uh, and came about. Uh, I was looking for a sutta again when my daughter was uh, an, very young. She's she's eighteen now, so I can't find any suttas anymore for her. Uh, but I I was looking for a sutta in my deluded uh, mind of the of the parent of a young child. One is somewhat uh, intoxicated uh, with loving-kindness. And um, and I was wondering if there was a sutta that kind of expressed that or talked about the bond between parent and child, or child and parent. And I was looking through the, the, the titles of the suttas, and there was one that was called Born of Those Who Are Dear. I thought, oh, that sounds cute. 
just what I'm looking for, born of those who are dear. This is going to be about the bond between parent and child. No. The Buddha, he doesn't play it that way. What is born from those who are dear? Suffering. Typical Buddhists. Well, the Buddha goes on to explain. He says, you know, when you are attached to someone, you want them to be healthy and to be happy, and you also kind of want them to do what you want them to do. So he's explaining this to the one of the, the king and queen of this uh, country that he was visiting. You know, if the prince decides he doesn't want to take the throne, you know, what would you do? Oh, I'd be very distressed. What if the 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 princess gets sick and and were to be ill? Oh, I'd be so upset. Yes, well, that's because of your attachment. Um, So this is, you know, the Buddha warning us about letting loving kindness lapse into attachment. This is called the the near enemy of loving kindness, desire or attachment. And again, you know, the Buddha is, is creating this almost impossible ideal for us. Um, and I, I, he never says, so don't form attachments. You know, <laughs> he says these attachments that people to you, people you love, suffering will come of that. But he doesn't say don't form attachments. And I don't think that's really his message. Maybe. Maybe I'm missing the point. But but I think, you know, when the Buddha talks about suffering and what causes suffering, so, some of the things that he talks about are things that we can control. But in some sense, like to let go of desire. Okay, that's it's possible. You can let go of a desire in a moment, for instance, or certain types of craving. But he also talks about that birth is suffering, sickness is suffering, death is suffering. And those are inevitable things. And I think what he's getting at, more than saying don't form attachments, is understand that there will, uh, some pain will come out of this. And of course joy will come out of it too. It's called life, right? It's gonna have both these. And, where we, where we get tripped up is when we have this expectation that certain relationships should just provide us with, you know, nonstop and, and, you know, unsullied pleasure or joy. That if we love someone and they love us, then it should just be all good. But, you know, the Buddha is this intensely practical, intensely realistic person who says, yes, that, that's part of those relationships. But if you get caught up in thinking that's the whole of it, then at some point you're going to suffer. They're going to die. You're, you know, you're going to uh, be separated from them or they aren't going to do what you want them to do. They're going to maybe choose to do it, go to a different college than the one you suggested they go to. That could happen. I don't know. They're just making that up, you know. Um, So where 
where our freedom comes is not so much in our situation, but in how we relate to our situation. It's, you know, by becoming a monk, you can, yes, you can step out of the conventional life and, you know, you're not gonna have a, a partner, a monk or a nun, I should say, when I, when becoming a monastic. You're not gonna have a partner, you're not gonna have those kind of attachments. But, you're still a human being, you know, and, and it's not like you get to turn off being human. Even, you know, that's, this is sort of a model the Buddha sets up the monastic life that's, uh, based in non-attachment, non-clinging, non-harming, but it doesn't, uh, protect you. Monk, you know, monks and nuns become attached just like anyone else. And there are even some implications in some of the final teachings when, when the Buddha is, is near death. And many of his dear ones and the people who were closest to him as a monk have died away. He talks about this feeling of kind of emptiness or loneliness, of kind of missing them. Um, and I don't know if he's, if he was attached to those people. Certainly he didn't seem, he wasn't very attached. Just on a, an, a side note, uh, just kind of everything I teach is more or less a side note. I could just do one book that was all sidebars. That would be. Um, Mark Epstein, the Buddhist author and uh, psychiatrist, I guess he is a, he's a Freudian analyst, is the famous book, Thoughts Without a Thinker. His most recent book is called The Trauma of Everyday Life. And he does a, a bit of a, Psychoanalysis of the Buddha. And the Buddha's mother died, uh, just a week after the Buddha was born. And he was then raised by his auntie, his stepmother, who married his father after his mother died. Um, and what Epstein kind of suggests is that this was a trauma that the Buddha internalized. And then he repeated it because, as the story goes, the night of the, that the Buddha's son was born, he left. He decided, oh, just decided I really ought to go get enlightened. Good timing. Yeah. Uh, you know, and uh, there are some, uh, questions as to how skillful that was. But since he became enlightened and the great, uh, teacher, it's hard to second guess him. Uh, there's a beautiful, another beautiful book, uh, uh, just as long as I'm recommending books called The Buddha's Wife that imagines the life of the Buddha's wife after he left and how she recovered from that. Uh, but, uh, what Epstein implies is that, or maybe states openly, is that something of what the Buddha was teaching came out of this, uh, his own trauma and that his focus so much on non-clinging and non-attachment may have been influenced somewhat by his own sense of abandonment, that it was safer to be not, not attached. Now that's a pretty risky claim to make uh, about uh, one of our great uh, masters. 
and who doesn't he's not here to defend himself. So um, I can just see him in therapy. You know. Anyway, <laughs> you know, I think you know you had a problem. Hey, what are you? T- if, he, if he started getting defensive, we would know that you know, <laughs> you were right. So the, just a, a few other things that uh, loving kindness again. Uh, the, some of the other aspects of loving kindness that we don't focus on so much. Originally, the Buddha taught metta practice to monks who had gone into the forest and got scared off by what they call called tree spirits. And the, uh, the suttas say that there were some spirits who lived in this forest, and th- and they didn't like having the monks come in their forest, so they spooked them. Which it maybe was that, or you know, if you've ever gone and out in the woods to camp out. It's kind of, you know, it can be kind of scary. It's dark out here, you know. Um, in any case, you know, they came back. The Buddha said, you know, it was scary. There's some tree spirits. He said, do this. Send loving kindness to them. And they go back and they send loving kindness to the tree spirits. And the tree spirits go, ah, oh, that feels good. Okay, you can stay. You know? But our, our kind of modern take on this, our gloss on this, is that, well, that he's teaching loving kindness as an antidote to fear. You know, we often think of, you know, love as as the opposite of of hatred, but love as an opposite of fear, as a, as an energy to fight off fear. I think of it as, you know, if you've ever had a big dog come at you, growling and barking. You know what they always say, like, if you show fear, they'll know, right? So you kind of you have to kind of breathe and you know you put out your hand and you kind of let them know it's okay and you kind of act kindly to them right so lo- so loving kindness as an antidote to fear another key element of this practice that we can use for ourselves uh, and then the, the I guess I'll say this is the last piece uh, well Maybe I'll do my one more piece after this. But the, an, another thing that loving kindness, many teachers, particularly the Burmese teachers, use loving kindness practice not really as a way to cultivate loving kindness at all, but you, they use it as a concentration practice. It's a very powerful concentration practice. So it's suggested that when you're doing the practice, even if you're not feeling it, just keep doing it because the visualization and the words creates, uh, it gives us very powerful uh, concentration object. And because concentration is, is so challenging for most people, it's really, it's a highly recommended practice that again sort of steps completely out of the idea, oh, I'm doing this so that I can more, be more loving. Um, not, not, not necessary, you know. Um, so, uh, I find it intriguing. I guess one of my, uh, agendas or goals as a teacher is to try to kind of, Look for the little gaps or spots where I'd, that I'd like to fill in that I feel aren't quite emphasized enough. So, so these are some of the things that I think uh, loving kindness practice can be useful for. Uh, and and if we think of it in the classic mold of sila samadhi panya or morality, meditation and wisdom, that's really what we're talking about here: the morality of blending like milk and water, and the 
the concentration practice, and then the wisdom of letting go of non-attachment and non-ill will. The, the final, what I plan for the final chapter of this book is uh, on sending loving kindness to the planet, to Earth, the planet Earth. I, I c- tried to kind of emphasize the one line in the sutta when they mention that they pour the water in a place where there's nothing living. They throw out the, re- the refuse so that they don't kill anything. So we know that the Buddha taught, you know, non-harming to all beings, not just to humans. And in the sutta, the metta sutta, after he talks about sending loving kindness to beings, there's a passage where he says, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies, downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. And I like to think that this is really about sending loving kindness to nature, to the sky. The sky is is ill on this planet. We have sickened it. We have sickened the waters, the sea, the earth, the what we have done to it. And and so more than obviously it needs more than our loving kindness meditation. But this is you know a starting point in a sense or a kind of igniting point is to reflect on that in a in a meditative way. So the the lines that come before that in the sutta say even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. So if we think of the mother in this sutta as being Mother Earth, in the sutta, Mother Earth was protecting us. And we can, we, Mother Earth has indeed protected us and this from where we get life. But it's come a time now when the children need to protect the mother. So I'll t- I'm going to uh, open it up, but uh, before we end tonight, I'm going to lead you in a short meditation um, on those concepts. Not now. Before we end. But I just wanted to see, you know, take any questions or reflections on the things I've been talking about. Please. My name is Mary, and um, I have to tell you, I've driven by Spirit Rock many, many times. I just moved here from the Bay Area two years ago, oh. and uh, would drive by it on the way to the Sonoma Coast to go to Salt Point. Um, and thank you for being here. Um, I, You mentioned uh, using loving kindness to overcome fear, and I had um, a... I, because of my history, I get very overwhelmed when somebody is going on the attack at me and I, I get, I just freeze and, um, I don't know what to do and I don't want to respond with, in kind with anger or attacking with a counterattack. So, um, I have just found that it's a lot of times I just freeze. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had somebody just keeping in mind, kind of rising up to a higher level and being 
a more loving, kind adult. Um, I had somebody who came to me on, on the attack. I work with the public. Um, she was on the attack and, uh, clearly in fight or flight mode. She said she was very stressed out and she wanted to argue with everything I said. And, um, I finally said, you know, I'm not trying to fight with you. And, um, we kind of did what we had to do, what she was there for. And then, um, at the end of it, I said, you know, I can really relate to where you're at right now because I've been in fight or flight mode and I know what it's like when you're so stressed out and it seems like nothing is going your way. And I made some suggestions about self care, um, and wished her well that whatever it was she was going through that she could get some relief or, or some help. Um, and I felt so much stronger and grown up rather than this fearful yeah. person yeah. who was afraid of this person coming at me, um, with a lot of anger that yeah. had nothing to do with me. Yeah, right. And, um, so I'm so grateful for learning it here and being able to practice it here and just being able to, for the practice, just for the practice in general. Thank you. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, it's kind of a well known that, you know, anger is often triggered by fear. It's a cover for fear. It's a response for fear. Fight or flight kind of shows it. It's coming out of, out of fear and, um, it's a way of defending. So it's very primal in that sense. But, um, yeah, being able to shift that into kindness in the person who is angry. Uh, And it's not to, I mean, obviously we have to meet them on some level that's appropriate so that it's not, you know, condescending or patronizing. Um, but, uh, but to be able to, uh, you know, not feel we have to protect ourselves, but to be able to, you know, respond to them with what they need. That's a powerful, powerful experience and beautiful story. Thank you. Yeah. Nice. Uh, this works best if you hold it parallel to the floor and close to your mouth. Um, it's interesting what you said about uh, the relationship between doing, like taking care in an external way of cooking dinner or cleaning toilets, and um, the of saying taking care by sitting. And it seems like um, the more I do it, the more I actually have a trust that what gives rise to the ability to do all those things is the commitment to the sitting. And I think that, for for me anyway, that the relationship between the intuitive mind, which can generate a way of behaving never uh, that you have never done before, sort of a new paradigm, or and the imagination, like the imagination, if if it is a muscle that allows us to sort of leap synapses, um, it has to has time to generate, and so. I say this because I'm really at odds with my child who is very oppositional. And at times, I just cannot stand this boy. And 
like seriously. And I just have this faith that if I just, I guess it sounds like praying, which, but, but if I just do meta and just sit there and just love him as best I can in that way, one day we're going to cross a road, you know, and I can't really see it coming and I don't know how it's going to happen. Certainly it happens in moments, but, um, so, so I don't know. That's my thoughts on that. Metta is praying. It's just not praying to anybody. So it's okay if it's praying. I mean, we sort of somehow make like, oh, well, we're Buddhist, we don't pray or something. But yeah, it's praying. It's okay. I mean, when you think about what prayers are, because, you know, working with 12-step stuff, there's a lot of prayer that goes on in that world. People often ask me, like, well, how do you pray? And it's like, um, anytime, you know, even if you think you're talking to God, you're just talking to yourself. I mean, you know, maybe you're talking to God too, but you're, you're talking to yourself for sure, and, and metta is talking to yourself in, in the same way. It's, it's putting out... Prayer to me is setting an intention or kind of being clear about how I want to be and, and what and what I want to cultivate within myself. So, um, yeah, that's, I'm glad that you feel that you trust that. I think you're right. I think your, your trust is well placed that, uh, hang in there, you know. Hi, my name is Ali. Um, I like what you had to say, Meta, be challenging us to uh, to love or send loving kindness to people we do not like. Um, I always thought they put it at the end because they kind of primed us with yeah. the first first four steps, you know, so you kind of get primed. And then when you get to that point, because I really look at that as kind of the gymnastics of the of the of the meta practice. It really is the thing that stretches one and, you know, and so I, I can remember very distinctly doing meta practice in here with Mark during the Iraq war. People I knew was time. Yeah, I've worked with him. Yes. And, and it's, it's opens you up. And so I like that. Plus, when I do, my meta practice, I always put to all beings at the end after that, kind yeah. of that connection. I just... Yeah, I, I kind of didn't mention that when yeah. I was running over yeah. the structure of it. Yeah, usually we then radiate out yeah. to all beings. Well, and the way I think of the difficult person a lot of times is it's almost like a check-in. You know, in the NBA, they have a thing called a heat check. When a guy's, like, hitting shots, we have a team out... California right now that's pretty good. You might have heard about them. And it's like further and further out the guy will get and it's like, okay, now I'm gonna shoot from forty feet. And the announcer will say, uh, okay, this is a heat check to see how hot is my shooting right now. So it's kinda like a heat check with your mind with your loving kindness. Have I got enough loving kindness to send it to this person I don't and and usually it's like, oh, that's where I realize that's the limits. Again, it's, it's, that becomes an insight practice then. Because at that moment, 
I'm not feeling loving kindness, but what I'm realizing is, oh, I'm not, I can't, right now I'm not capable. This is the limit of my loving kindness. So I've learned something. I've seen something in my limits. It also helps with arrogance. If I think, oh, I'm just so full of love. And then I go, oh, well, maybe not so much. So, and, uh, okay, maybe I still do have some work to do. I might not have attained the fourth stage of enlightenment yet. I, um, but, uh, the one I think that where we really can see, I think, uh, for, I don't know if this is true for most people, but I've seen it myself and I've heard people talk about it. Working with the neutral person is the place where you can really see this shift. Like it was a month-long retreat where I worked with a guy who worked in the video store up the street from my house. When I got home and I went into that store, I was like, there he is. Ah. <laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> and you you realize that wow, that happened through intentional mind training, through intentionally cultivating loving kindness, thinking of this person over and over, day after day for a month, and sending love to him. It's he stopped being a neutral person. And so I th- I think the hope then with the difficult, is to get them over to neutral. That, that's, I think, should be a go- the goal, rather than, oh, I'm going to love him or her. That I'm just, if I can just get to a place where I can think of that person without closing down, that I can think of them and my heart still stays, okay, it's okay, I'm not shutting down. That would be real progress. I, I, I'm going to so put that out to you and to me as as our goal for the next six months until we get past this national trauma. I didn't know this would happen. And if there's anybody in here who doubts what you're saying, however, they wouldn't doubt what you're saying. (laughs) My father abused me starting when I was a young child, sexually. And I learned about loving kindness. He was in the nursing home, Alzheimer's. And I started doing this having no idea, because it was new to me, no idea what would happen. And about, I would guess, eight months of doing this, he, he, he died then. And I was able to go and take, I was, I was with my mother, I was with him, I did the funeral. My heart changed towards my abuser. There's someone over in the corner over here or somewhere by? Okay, there's a couple others. So my name's James, and this is my first time um, practicing or meditating, to be frank. And so I just have a simple question. When talking about love and kindness, would you say the Buddha is the first person to look to as an example of modeling it in your life? Um, It's in Buddha's teaching, it's through the Buddha's teachings that I first encountered the concept, I think, in in the way that it's presented. Yeah. Um, the first time I did this practice, it was on a retreat about 35 years ago, and and I was amazed by what it did to my heart. Um, but I also recognized the feeling. 
you know, it was, I had, I had touched it before somewhere. I don't know where. So, so it, he was the first, it's through his teachings that was the first time that I kind of became consciously aware of this as a potential kind of form to work with. But as I said, I, I, I realized that it was something that was maybe already there within me. Does that answer your question? Yeah, thank you. And then back in the corner, and then maybe we can do this uh, metta for the earth. Keep going. She's all the way back there. Practice of patience. So I wish to uh, receive your offering of when there's a tremendous change in my day-to-day activity recently. There's tremendous frustration that's arising, and so I find that the ill will is going towards others. And there's a denial that that ill will is actually ill will towards myself, perhaps, and not... um, working through the change um, or having doubt about the intellect of the change and the constant um, new applications, etc. So when you have this uh, denial arising and you see that the ill will is probably ill will towards yourself, um, if there's a tool that gives you the courage to at least get started and not to because I so appreciate the clarification of not getting caught up in just the loving kindness, because I also see that as a real insight. So for me, it's just finding, um, just like when you're in a difficult moment, you see where the respite is to, you know, have a cup of tea. So if there's some type of a tool when there is such consistent change that you're just trying to have the courage just to show up, If you have any thoughts about that. I don't know if I would use the word tool. Um, because um, you know, a tool is something you use to sort of fix something. And I don't think that that's really what you're talking about. I don't know that... I would agree with yeah. that. So thanks for that so clarification. So maybe think more about it as... Uh, I guess I would just say a perspective or an orientation. So the way that you look at... the You know, mindfulness is a shift in perspective from identification with things. This is happening to me to observing things. This is happening. And I'm seeing, I'm, I'm aware of it, I'm experiencing it, but it isn't me. There isn't a me in the middle. We, when we add me in, then that's where the problem starts, right? The identification. So uh, particularly in, in moments of struggle, to be able to step back and take this broader view, the the stance of wisdom, which we actually all have this potential for that. We just have to remember to do it, to stop and say, oh, this is difficult. 
And the reason it's difficult is because it's difficult, not because there's something wrong with me. And so often, you know, when we're in a difficult experience, just as you say, we blame ourselves for it being difficult rather than stepping back and going, oh, like, life is difficult. (laughs) Attachment, you know, if I have, just as I was talking about the perspective on attachment, when we when we're attached to someone, if we understand that that causes suffering, the suffering is actually reduced, even though there still may be some difficulty around it. We understand that's where it's coming from. So if you can see that just what the process is that's happening, that, you know, fixing it or changing it, that's in that, when we get into that perspective, there's striving. There's wanting. There's aversion. And those are all the things that create suffering in the first place. So it's that stepping out or stepping back to see this as just a human experience, a, a natu- natural, that suffering, that difficulty is a natural part of human experience. That, that then it doesn't fix the problem. It doesn't take away it being difficult. But it has this quality, just as mindfulness itself has, of, of healing or settling. So that there's kind of, the Buddha talks about the two darts. The one dart is the dart of the difficulty or the pain of life. And the second dart is our judgment of it and our struggle with it. And when we remove that judgment, then life just has its difficulties, but it's half as difficult. And that, that's, that's the most I think I can offer. Uh, based on what you said. Thank you. So let's, we have just a few minutes. Let's see if I can take you through this meta for the earth in just a few minutes. So just settling back into your body, into the breath. Just letting these words move through you. Breathing into my heart, I feel my connection to the atmosphere that surrounds and protects me. Breathing out of my heart, I radiate love to the atmosphere. I see it protected and healed. The sky is bright and blue, the air precious and pure. Breathing into my heart, I feel my connection to the earth beneath me. Breathing out of my heart, I radiate love down into the earth. I see it protected and healed. The earth is vibrant, green and fragrant with life. Breathing into my heart, I feel my connection to the sea from which all life arises. Breathing out of my heart, I radiate love to the sea. I see it protected and healed.
The sea is clear blue, bright and shining. I hold the entire planet and all living beings in my heart with love, care, and compassion. May this planet be safe. May this planet be healed. May this planet be free from suffering. Thank you. I will be here again tomorrow night for a Dharma and Recovery. So anyone who's interested, please come at 7 tomorrow. If you're interested in more of my teachings and my finding me, my website is kevingriffin.net. My retreats and books and everything are on there. So hope I will meet you again. Thank you. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.